Hello, fellow humans. This is Robert Roach with the Type 1 Planet Podcast. And today I had a, such a fun conversation with Bruce Schneier. It's his second time on Type 1 Planet. And uh, he came back on because he has a new book out. It's called A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. And uh, so if, for those of you who do not know, Bruce is an amazing person. He is an internationally renowned technologist. He is a security guru. He's a New York Times bestselling author of 14 books, uh, Hacker's Mind included. He's written hundreds of articles and essays and academic papers. Um, he has an amazing blog called Schneier and Security that's read by hundreds of thousands of people. And he's also a lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, teaching exactly the kinds of stuff that we talk about in this book. It's so fascinating. Uh, would love to sit on that class if I could. Um, and yeah, so what do we do? We go into this book, A Hacker's Mind, and what it means to have a hacker's mindset. And when we're talking about hacking, we're not just talking about playing around with computer code. We're talking about playing around with the code that actually builds our civilization itself and our entire society. Things like our financial institutions, our laws, the way that we do real estate, the way that we handle money and sports. All of these things have rules and a code that uh, underlies the way that it functions. And when you have rules and a code, you have vulnerabilities and ways to subvert that code, to use it in a way that it wasn't originally intended to be used. And that's what hacking is. That's what we talk about in this book. We talk about why our society is optimized to serve people who are powerful and organizations who are powerful, who have found these hacks, have exploited them and then change the rules so that they can continue to exploit those hacks and continue to build upon those loopholes that gave them the power in the first place. And a big question that we go into in this interview is how do we change it back? And how do we fix the patch these systems and turn it into something that is more beneficial to everyone involved, not just the most powerful and the most rich? Um, the, there's a lot of fun examples and uh, of hacks in this interview, especially in the book. I highly recommend you go check the book out. You can buy it on Amazon, which I'll link. And you can also listen to it on Audible, which I will also link. I listened to it. It was great. And so uh, please enjoy this interview. Hit me up if you have any or uh, hit up Type 1 Planet, type1planet.net on our social media at Type 1 Planet. And I hope you enjoy this. It's really fun. Bruce is just a totally bombastic and wonderful personality and i love doing interviews with him so enjoy and i'll talk to you soon hello everyone welcome to type one planet this is robert roach and here i'm with bruce schneier bruce thanks again for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me again well we're we have you on because i had the pleasure of reading your book hacker's mind how the powerful bend society's rules and how to bend them back uh this is one of those rare and powerful reading experiences where I see almost everything through a new lens and a new light after completing it. So hopefully we can start the listeners down that road uh, in this interview, but also get them to, to your book afterwards. Um, I'd like to start with a quote from the book, uh, and it's a short one. It says, the world's problems would be a little easier if, it, sorry, the world's problems would be a little easier to solve if everyone knew a bit more about hacking. So Let's take the opportunity here to help a few more people know about hacking. What do you mean when you use that word? So I'm actually generalizing a computer term, right? A hack is something we have in the computer field and, and it's associated with breaking into systems, associated with crime, 
associated with cleverness. But what it really is, is figuring out a way to make a computer do something it wasn't intended to do. Right? You find some flaw, some mistake, some oversight in a program, in the hardware, in the software that lets you do something that you shouldn't be able to do. That's kind of why it's associated with criminality, because often the thing you want to do is illegal. But I'm using it to mean any subversion of a system of rules. So the tax code is not computer code, but it's code, it's formulas, it's algorithms, as inputs and as outputs. It is very much a deterministic system. And that code, that tax code, has uh, vulnerabilities. We call them tax loopholes. It has uh, exploits. We call them tax avoidance strategies. And there are black hat hackers that look for these vulnerabilities, where they call them accountants and attorneys. So the parallel is pretty, pretty, pretty robust. And my generalization is that any system of rules will have errors and oversights. It'll be outdated. There'll be emissions. There will be avenues to hack, right? Finding it ways to do things that benefit you at the expense of the system. So tax loopholes are one, regulatory loopholes are another. You could think of things that happen uh, in the democratic process, gerrymandering, the filibuster. These are all unintended ways to subvert systems, right? Not to break rules, but hacks follow the rules. This is important, right? A tax loophole is sort of by definition legal. You're not cheating, although you, you know, you, you're kind of taking advantage of a system but you're following the rules and uh, subverting their intent. Now, you can argue the filibuster does the same. And you know, I have lots of examples in the book from all sorts of areas, but I'm looking at systems of rules and how they can be subverted, usually by the rich and powerful. Well, you had a really great analogy between the dichotomy of hacks and sports and the hacks in our society. And in sports, you know, you have a hack it, it causes an inappropriate inequality. Um, and then that vulnerability you noted is either immediately fixed to keep equality going between the two teams, or if people like it, if it helps the sport in some way, it actually becomes incorporated into the sport. And, um, and that happens to attacks loopholes as well. Right. Right. They carried interest loophole. We've been fighting for 20 years. You know, it's something we're trying to close the rules so we can't do it anymore but it has remained legal. I mean, gerrymandering is very much a part of U.S. politics. The filibuster was a hack invented in ancient Rome. It's like 30 BCE, this is Roman senator that realizes that the rules say all business must be completed by sundown. That's the rule. So he looks around and realizes, you know, if I never stop talking, they can't get anything done. And so that was a hack that here it is 2,000 years later, and it's you know a part of the U.S. Senate in such a way that we just can't get rid of it, even though it's kind of a weird subversion of the notion of a democratic body. So yeah, sports is a good place to look for hacks because you have people who want to win, who are studying the rule book and are looking for loopholes. And yes, some loopholes become part of the sport because they end up changing it for the better. So I'll give you one of each. So in hockey, curving your hockey stick is a hack. 
Uh, we know the name of the person who did it. I have his name. I have the year. We know exactly when the first hockey player said, you know, I can curve my stick. And have by doing so, edge. yeah, yeah, curved edge, uh, the puck flies faster. It gets air. The sport gets much more exciting and much more dangerous. And the rule book over the years and decades has changed several times how much curvature is legal. So there they incorporated it, but have tried to regulate it. Uh, another example is uh, Formula One racing. So sometime in the 1970s, a team shows up on the track with a six-wheeled car. And everyone says, you can't have a six-wheeled car. And they pull up the rule book and say, show me. And it turns out the rules are silent on the number of wheels a car could have. Now, that was changed. Now, if you read the rule book today, it will say that a car can have no more or no less than, don't get any ideas, four wheels. Right? So there, the hack was, uh, was declared illegal. Now, sometimes it just becomes a uh, part of the game, something that, that we just do. Uh, the person who invented the new way to do the high jump, he has a certain kind of flop. I forget his name. So it's an F. And he changed the high jump as an Olympic sport. That everyone does his way of jumping now. Right? That was a hack originally, and it is now part of the game. I think the difference, and you do, you talk, uh, you allude to this a lot in the book, the difference between our society and sports is that imagine if the hacks, for example, were uh, the rules in, in which to decide whether or not a hack stays or goes is only decided by the winning team or the winning individual right and i feel like in society we are we're having this interesting power struggle where many of these hacks especially in terms of finance especially in terms of politics are being decided by the people who are in charge and that's why we're having such trouble patching them is that is that an overgeneralization or no that that's pretty good so i mean let's go back to computers right the reason it's easy to patch microsoft windows is microsoft's in charge of the patching i mean they see a vulnerability and they patch it. I mean, it's, you know, once a month, you'll get, you'll download a hundred or so patches for your Windows machine and, and all those loopholes will be closed. Uh, for the sports loopholes, there's a regulatory body of the sport whose sort of job is to, you know, not let one or the other team win, but to make the sport kind of exciting for the spectators. So that's why you'll find some hacks will be allowed and some will be prohibited. You know, at a casino, you come up with a hack, right? A way to get an advantage that isn't against the rules. The rules will be amended to make sure you can't do that. And it really comes down to power. And that's the words you used. And when you're dealing with hacks in society, let's say a regulatory hack, like, you know, Uber, there's several hacks to, to take advantage of the different regulations about taxis to get around them. I mean, the Uber, Airbnb, a lot of those companies did that. Then they, you know, started lobbying to make sure that their hacks would not be declared illegal. Or if you are a hedge fund manager and you take advantage of the carried interest loophole to save, you know, millions of dollars in taxes, you're going to funnel a third of that back to your congressperson to make sure that that congressperson doesn't vote against that loophole. So yeah, power matters a lot here when you get to hacks in broader society. If you or I found a new tax loophole, guarantee you it would be closed pretty quickly and because we don't have any power goldman sachs finds one it probably stays open hmm. 
So let's let's talk a little bit about the financial system. It's it's a really interesting one for me because I, from my perspective, the financial system is closely tied to more and more closely tied to exponentially accelerating technologies like automatic trading and artificial intelligence. Is it even possible to create? And w- let's talk a little bit about patches. Uh, that's a word we kind of haven't defined yet. But is it possible to create patches for a system that evolves so quickly? How do we create a financial system, financial patch in this way? I mean, you can. I mean, so th- there's a hard, tr- this is a hard problem that regulation tends to move slower. There's no reason why you can't do it. I mean, Microsoft will patch a system within days if it has to. You just do it. I mean, but they have the authority to do it. So if an entity has the legal authority to patch a financial system, they can do it. And you can imagine that there being some kind of regulatory court that would have that authority. So, so it's not impossible. You know, our systems aren't designed for that kind of speed and agility, but there's nothing inherent in governance that makes that impossible. We have just built these systems at human speeds instead of technological speeds. But that is that is fixable. We might decide not to fix it, but that is fixable. Mm. Let's get a little into some examples here. And I wanted you to start with one of my favorites from the book was a, uh, a hack you discovered while traveling through airports um, as a younger man. And uh, I was just wondering if you'd be willing to, to, to tell that story and give people an example of right. what hacks are, how they can start thinking in this way. Uh, All right, so this is a complicated one. I see if I can get it right. So this is from the era of paper tickets, right? Paper tickets and paper boarding passes. And if you remember, I'll, for the young, for the younger uh, listeners and viewers, you had a paper ticket that was printed when you bought the ticket. So if you're going, uh, you know, you're changing planes somewhere, you have four pieces of paper, one one for each leg of your flight, and then you would get a paper boarding pass which would be stapled to the paper ticket. You'd present those two things to an agent who would tear the boarding pass in half, give you half, and let you on the plane. That's the way it worked. All right, so here's what I wanted. I am living in D.C. I am flying to California via Chicago on one of those two airlines. We'll leave them nameless. And I want to spend the weekend in Chicago because I've got a girlfriend there. But... And to do that legit would be uh, D.C. to Chicago for the weekend, Chicago out to the West Coast, and then back. It's much more expensive. It's two stops. And even worse, my company is paying for the ticket, so they're not going to pay the additional. So here's what I do. So if I get this right. I buy the ticket for the end of the weekend. And so I get... DC to Chicago, Chicago, let's say to California for the Sunday. And I get, so I get those two tickets. I go to the ticket office, which happened to be in DC near where I worked. And I would ask for boarding passes. They would give me boarding passes and I would staple them to the tickets and they would staple tickets and I would leave. All right. So now I have tickets and boarding passes. All right. Then I call the airline and I change my ticket to Friday. And they do that in the computer and that's just fine. All right. So now Friday, I go to the airport. I remove my boarding passes and put them in my pocket. I show up with the tickets for Sunday and I go to the, go to the ticket counter and say, you know, here's my ticket. And I change my reservation to Friday. It's in your computer. They said, they, they look, it's right. And they, oh, 
issue me new boarding passes for Friday. From D.C. to Chicago. Told you this is complicated. Chicago to California. All right. So now think of what I have. I have tickets for Sunday. Boarding passes for Friday. Boarding passes for Sunday. Friday's in the computer. I fly from D.C. to Chicago on that first uh, first leg. Spend the weekend in Chicago. Have a fine time. Sometime during the weekend, I take my Chicago to California leg, remove the Friday boarding pass, replace it with the Sunday boarding pass that I had in my pocket. Okay? Now on Sunday at the right time, I go to the airport. I have a ticket for that Sunday flight, Chicago to California. I have a boarding pass for that flight, but I am not in the computer at all. I walk up to the, uh, to go inside, right? You don't need to show your ticket to go through security at this point. I go to the gate when it's boarding time. I present my ticket. I want to get on the plane. The computer beeps. He's not there. What's going on? We have no idea. I say, well, look, I have a ticket. I have a boarding pass here. I have a boarding pass. I got to Chicago two hours ago. Remember, I had that old boarding pass never used. So they are completely confused and they just let me on the plane. So that was my hack. How, it was. <laughs> how long did you do it's that? It's crazy. <laughs> you know, it worked for a few years. It stopped working when they stopped having paper tickets. As they moved right. to tickets on your phone, when you didn't have to get a separate boarding pass, they kind of did away with boarding passes. Boarding pass used to be a, se- a, a separate step, and now it really isn't. I mean, it, it, the the system kind of evolves. So that no longer worked. But for a bunch of years, there's a really good way for me to uh, spend the weekend in Chicago. That's awesome. Right? So, and, and I'm just showing up with all the paperwork that's valid, even though the computer system has no idea what to do with me. And I'm relying on the agent just to be completely confused and accepting what I say. That's, uh, it's, it's. And you did point out, by the way, that your confidence, <laughs> walking into that situation, having the confidence and being like, and pretending that you knew exactly what you were doing uh, was a big one. And, and uh, there is a power to that situation. You know, you, is, right. some, you a, mentioned you're a white I'm male, a, I'm a, you know, I'm a well-dressed white guy. Yeah, right. right. So, so that also was playing into it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, you know, I don't know how the computer works. It's, you know, I, I, I'm just like, I'm supposed to be here It's obvious I am here. Like, what do you mean there's no seat for me? I have a boarding pass. It says 5A on it. That's my seat. Well, the whole book is jam-packed with examples like this. <laughs> with those kind of dumb stories, I know. <laughs> but not not all personal uh, Bruce stories. Um, and there's a, there's one as well that I'd love to bring up, um, which kind of blew my mind. And I told my wife about it this weekend, and it kind of blew her mind, was the luxury real estate hack. And this is one that uh, I had no idea what was going on. You're talking about the the... I think in the book you're talking about the real estate in London. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, this is another kind of financial money laundering type situation. What is it's it a financial happened? hack. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it speaks to the fact of power because if power wasn't using this, this, this would have been closed. So basically, uh, real estate isn't subjected to the same kind of know your customer anti-money laundering regulations that regular investments have. So that's that that is the, the that is the major loophole that if you have dirty money, you can buy real estate with it. 
you might not be able to invest it elsewhere. So cities like London and New York end up being havens for this. And, you know, so it really perturbs the market. You have these very expensive luxury apartments that are bought, you know, by shell corporations with cash and no audit trail. No one's looking under any, uh, you know, any rocks because no one wants to know. And there's no rules that say you have to look. They tend to be unoccupied because they really are just there or investment. And you have someone living there, it kind of depreciates your investment. You don't want, you don't want to do that. So you leave them empty. But also, once you have the real estate, you can borrow against it. So you can create clean money by borrowing against the equity in the real estate. So now it's kind of in everybody's interest to keep that property value high. Even if you don't sell, even if you can't sell, you don't depreciate it. You keep it at that high value because everybody's doing well here. And it is a way to evade a lot of the financial regulations that prevent money laundering or prevent, you know, basically illegally gain money from entering the normal financial market. Now, when you think about how do you close this loophole, it's easy, right? Just extend the know your customer laws to real estate. We're done. But as long as there are some very powerful people making money here, Right, you're you're not going to see that. And actually, in the Trump administration, the controls were reduced because Trump is a real estate developer and he's making money based on this loophole. That but was- London is the worst. I mean, there's there are parts of London that are basically empty because there's a lot a lot of Middle Eastern money, a lot of Russian money uh, being laundered through uh, London real estate. It's such a paradox to me because you have these empty neighborhood. You know, I'm imagining an empty section of the city essentially. It's impossible for businesses to other, you know, like a Starbucks. Oh, yeah. Or... Walk around Belgravia. It's a ghost town. <laughs> and, and and so it's just holding value. Uh, you know, that's right. the only thing that these buildings are doing, but they still put toilets inside of them. And, you know, uh... yeah, you, mean, you, you saw that also in art there. There is a, a part of the art market, which is also being used as value store. And the art is, you know, stored in temporary uh, in, in warehouses, in places like Switzerland's and they don't even, you don't even see the art that it is just this value store. And it's the same kind of thing that it's a way to launder money and the ability to borrow against it turns it into clean money that you can actually use to buy, you know, yachts and stuff mm. and that, that you might actually want. So let's start to talk about how we think about fixing these problems. And they're so big, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a random rule in in a in a, a sport seems like an incredibly easy thing to do here. Um, and one, but one phrase that um, you use is red teaming in the book, and you talk about uh, you know creating potentially creating an incentive structure in which we search proactively for vulnerabilities and then use incentive structures to to find them and patch them, and um, you know. Is that possible to kind of start to apply red teaming to these larger systems like finance and politics and that kind of stuff? I think it's possible, but I think it's hard. I mean, if you are a Goldman Sachs, a Morgan Stanley, you are going to make money off of hacks. If a new tax law is uh, is voted on, you're going to have a team of attorneys, a team of accountants, read every single line of that very carefully looking for oversights, 
looking for mistakes. And you're going to find some. Right? The, the Bush tax cuts were like written at the 11th hour. There are parts of it written in pen on paper. It was a disaster in, 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 in trying to make it coherent. So there are going to be things you're going to find. Right? And then you're going you're gonna to use them. Now, we could do that before the tax law is passed. This is a little subtle. I mean, there are some loopholes that are put in on purpose. I mean, I'm just looking at accidental ones. But there are a lot of loopholes that are slipped in at the request of somebody mm. where you don't realize that it's a loophole until it's too late. But if we can have an organization do that kind of analysis with a new law, tax law, any kind of regulation before it becomes law, you know, it might not get fixed, but at least it becomes part of the debate. But sometimes you have to sort of go above and fix systems. So I want to give one more story. So this is not in my book. I learned about it later. It was too late to get it. Exclusive. The here we go. <laughs> it's an exclusive here. So uh, in the like 1700s, 1600s, there was a spate of random murders in Europe. Oddly enough, Northern Europe, most, I think with Denmark, most of all. So here is the hack. It's going to be bizarre when I tell you this story. All right, you want to commit suicide, but you know that suicide is a mortal sin. If you commit suicide, you go straight to hell. So you believe this with 100% certainty. So here is your hack. You murder an innocent person. You will be arrested. You'll try it, convicted. You will be hanged. But before you are hanged, you can confess to a priest. So you, you end your own life, but you don't go to hell. You laugh. This was an actual problem. And the only way they solved it was to eliminate capital punishment. Right, so they, they mean, that the way they fixed it was to go above and remove the incentive for the hack. Nothing else worked. Wow, that's fascinating. When was this happening? You said something. Oh, like the 1700s? Yeah. That's insane. I blogged it. <laughs> so, but it, it, it is an absolutely bizarre story. That's, that's, that is bizarre. Um, and by the way, I'm going to link both of, uh, I think you have two blogs actually. Is that right? Cryptogram? I have one blog. Okay. So, okay. You, okay. Sorry. It's Snyder on security. Everything, everything goes to the same place. Okay, I, good. Having more than one thing in my life is just too confusing. <laughs> good. Snyder on security. I'll, I'm going to link that. It's awesome. Um, so, one thing that you wrote, and this 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 kind of feeds a little bit into, it, is that you wrote regulatory structures um, that are suitable for the information age just don't exist yet. You know that we don't have the capability of regulating things that are moving as quickly as they are. And you you go extensively to artificial intelligence at the end of the book. It's so interesting. Um, how do it's it's speed and size. Yeah, and these companies move so fast, but they're also so big. And there's now, who has the right regulatory footprint to regulate Facebook? I mean, Facebook has more users worldwide than Christianity. Right? It's so big. So, so it's both. It, it, it's the speed at which these companies move. They're moving so fast that they just are just way ahead of regulation. And they're so large that they could play jurisdictional arbitrage. And they could you know, always be in the space where they're not regulatable. Or, you know, for many, you know, the U.S. can regulate Facebook to, to some extent, so can the EU. But a lot of countries just have no ability to. And even the U.S., because, you know, companies like that play so many international games, 
there are things they can get away with that that you know just uh, you know justify regulation. Mm. You know, Apple is an Irish company technically because that's how they get around a lot of tax laws. They don't act like an Irish company. They're not an Irish company, but they are an Irish company. Like when they have to be. So they're playing a whole bunch of games, and a lot of the, a lot of them are hacks. I mentioned the double Dutch Irish sandwich. So that is that actually is the tax loophole that companies like Facebook and Google used to shield billions from U.S. taxes over, over a whole bunch of years. Uh, did you mention that in the book, the double Dutch Irish sandwich? I think I did. Yeah, it's it, it, it's some complicated. I mean, it's a tax loophole that involves the laws of the U.S., Ireland the Netherlands, and an offshore Caribbean tax haven. So the laws of four different jurisdictions all together produce this tax loophole. Oh, my God. <laughs> right. I mean, so, so right, some very highly paid people found this. Yep. Yep. Really good hackers. Um, on the topic of uh, these tech companies, there's a phrase, uh, computational propaganda, which you talk a little bit about in the book. And I just wanted to Talk a little bit about that. What is computational propaganda? Why is it important for the way that we are handling ourselves in the technolo technological age? Yeah, I think of it as computer-generated propaganda. You know, so we're living now in the year of ChatGPT, so we all know what that means, right? It, it's computer-generated stuff that you know has a bias, has an opinion that sounds like a person, and and the reason. It's bad, not because it replaces a person like so what, that it replaces a million people at the touch of a button, right? It's the scale that makes that that worse. You know, we learned in 2016 that you know the Russians didn't need to write propaganda; they just need to sort of push propaganda to you know Americans that want to repeat it. So, so you don't actually need to be you don't need the creative. What you need is the scale. Hmm. And and propaganda at computational speeds is fundamentally different, primarily because it, it perturbs what you think is normal. You know, we go on the internet and we sort of see the milieu of conversation, whether on Twitter or someplace else, and we think that mirrors the population. Like Twitter never did, but now it really doesn't. Because it could be just bots arguing with bots with no actual people involved. I, I think there's some theory of the internet that... that uh... <laughs> some some absurd proportion of the entirety of the activity and the happening in the internet is bots hanging out and talking with other bots now or something like that. I, you know, <laughs> empty and it's going to get worse. Yeah, it, it, I, you don't know how much it is now, and and that number that might not be knowable, just because it is so hard to uh, find bots. And you know, and companies are only doing a half-assed job because you know they make more money by not doing it. So despite all the rhetoric you hear. I, mean, I think Twitter's doing a worse job now than it used to, but even even let's take Facebook now, which spends a lot of effort removing what they call coordinated inauthentic behavior. So it doesn't, whether it's computer or human generated, it's it's inauthentic, right? It doesn't reflect real people, and it's coordinated, right? It's not just individuals; it is it's 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 artificial movements, mm. and they look for that and they try to take that down. But they they don't do a great job. You err on the side of keeping things up because you don't want to piss off a real customer. I remember, and they and they get paid not on quality, right? Not on truth, but they get paid on engagement. And what engages you is stuff that annoys you. You know, sorry, right? It, it, it's yeah. The 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 cell the human based incentive structures uh, around AI and and, and technology and, and social media is, is was is fascinating. 
And a question I had for you around, for example, you mentioned ChatGBT and um, anthropomorphic anthropomorphic AI. Um, are we self hacking our species by creating anthropomorphic AI? Yeah, you know. So, so this here's where my my term gets a little fuzzy, right? So, you know, maybe find hacking as as systems that subvert the uh, letter of the rules. Sorry, that that follow the letter of the rules but subvert its intent, right? And I, I have a chapter on cognitive hacks, right? Hacking our, our cognition systems, but that's really kind of a stretch because there isn't a designer, there isn't a purpose, there isn't a, you know, there isn't some authority that is creating our cognitive systems. But they were did evolve at a certain time and place for a certain purpose, right? They evolved for living in small family groups in the East African highlands in 100,000 BC, right? That's, you know, that's the environment in which all of our cognitive systems evolved. They did not evolve for 2023 New York City, right? They just didn't. It's a totally, totally new world for us. So you can think of different human systems that hack those cognitive functions, right? That hack our terrorism, hacks fear. I've been saying that for decades, well before I wrote this book. Now, you know, you know, Facebook hacks uh, attention and outrage. Its systems attack, uh, hack our feelings of authority mm-hmm. uh, or loyalty. You know, brands, corporations, right? Are, we have feelings of loyalty, but they're attached to other humans, not to you know, corporate brands. But corporate brands leverage those same cognitive functions for their own ends. And and AI is going to uh, to do the same things that Facebook does, right? To keep right, Facebook is optimized to to keep us on their pl- on their platform, right. and, and all of that is optimized to to manipulate us to get us to buy things we might not otherwise buy because it's all advertising. Mm-hmm. But the AI systems, and again, power matters here. Right? These are not AIs that we designed and built for our purposes. These are being run by Google and Facebook and Microsoft for their purposes. So we think of them as our agents doing the things we want, but they're actually double agents. And when the AI recommends that you, you know, buy a thing or go to a place, are they getting a kickback from someone? We have no idea. Right. Yeah, you know, we they're... think they're not, but but I mean, Google search is all about kickbacks. You go on Google search, the first page of search results are, are, are people who paid Google to, to, to be there. You go to Amazon and search for a product. The first few pages are products that, that are giving Amazon a kickback. And so these are not neutral agents working on our behalf. These are double agents pretending to work on our behalf. And AI is going to be no different you know, unless we do something about it now. It's going to be these big corporations using them to uh, to manipulate us. How do we do something about it now? That's well, you know, this is hard, right? Yeah. You know, this this involves regulation, which is you know not a word Silicon Valley likes to hear. Not even a word government likes to hear. It's you know you can't even get the U.S. government to to regulate itself. But these things are becoming very powerful. They're becoming infrastructure. They're becoming very important. And regulation is going to be the way to to remove the profit motive from some of these areas. You know, the place to look for regulation right now is the EU. They're doing a better job than anybody else. Still, it's only okay. 
but this is moving very fast. You know, I mean, I, I don't uh, subscribe to the AI is going to kill us all narrative. But, you know, build the building, building our technological future for the near term financial benefit of a bunch of white male Silicon Valley tech billionaires. It's kind of a dumb way to organize society. But that's what we got. Yeah. And, and the only way to step in is is through government. I mean, government is how we act collectively as society rather than individually as 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 consumers. You and, mentioned, and, you know, that, that mismatch is going to fail. Mm hmm. You mentioned earlier creating a governmental body, and in the book you refer to an HGS or hacking governmental system. I think that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, right. I, I I invented an acronym because I couldn't like yep. come up with anything real, and that was a little embarrassing. But, no, it's... but I only remembered it because of the acronym. So good job. Oh, awesome. So I guess <laughs> did some good. You did something. You know, um, and, what is it? Right. That? How do we do it? You know, I mean, I've seen someone talk about the Federal Robotics Commission. Uh, some people talk about we need to look at sort of AI and cybersecurity like we look at aircraft or pharmaceuticals. You know, we tend to regulate the hell out of things that when you get it wrong, people die. I mean, that's where you have, you can't just do whatever you want. You got to have stringent testing. I mean, think about pharmaceuticals. Every part of that is regulated to the point if you're going to give something to a, a, an actual customer, there's a huge amount of testing and paperwork beforehand. If you're going to put someone on an airplane, like an actual paying customer, there's a huge amount of regulation and testing beforehand. Same with automobiles. Same with skyscrapers. Like getting it wrong, people die. And computers have been exempt from that. But we're getting to the point where getting it wrong, people die. Right? It's not just Teslas in their self-driving mode. Right, which, according to the Washington Post, have killed way more people than they than they've ever admitted. You know, it's going to be our phones. It's going to be you know all sorts of things that are going to be so embedded in our lives that mistakes will be fatal. And at that point, you lose the kind of free for all that we've enjoyed in the computer field. Now that's way less fun, you know, but I think that's where we're headed. If you had the opportunity to address all the young people, let's just put it that way. Let's say everyone under the age of 18 or think about what they want to do next. Um, they want to make a difference. They're worried about the future. How do you, wh wh what advice would you give them on how to develop a hacker's mindset on how to be able to start seeing the world? And, and I say all the young people, because that's the easy way of saying I'm, I felt, I felt like a dumbass before I read this book. I still feel like a dumbass, but at least now I have the, uh, a perspective, a new perspective that is has given me something. So how do you how do people develop this? And, and yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm not allowed to say buy and read my book. That feels a little too self. -serving. I'm gonna say it. Buy and read his book. It's yeah, okay. Someone else can say it. You know, it, <laughs> so I try to teach this uh, in my class. So I teach uh, cybersecurity policy, the Harvard Kennedy School, which basically means I'm teaching cryptography to students who deliberately did not take math in college. So it's kind of a an interesting uh, road to hoe. But I am trying to teach this hacker's mind, this adversarial thinking. So I open the first class with a couple of, of exercises. And I'll say, okay, how would you turn out the lights? Give me 10 ways to turn out the lights. And flicking the switch and breaking the bulb are too easy, they don't count. And we talk about that for a while. 
And there are lots of ways. You actually end up with, I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to blow up the power station. All sorts of crazy ways. I'm going to throw a blanket over your head so you can't see. I mean, all these work. And then I say, okay, here's next one. How would you steal lunch from the cafeteria? Lots of ways to steal lunch from the cafeteria. And, and we can spend 10, 15 minutes on those. And they will end up with, you know, I pull the fire alarm. Which, which, which works. Or I, you know, find someone who bought lunch and take their lunch. Uh, then I will ask how you change your grades. You talk about that. Uh, so at this time, I'll ask, well, how would you uh, flip an election? We talk, talk about different ways to ballot stuff and, and to subvert elections. And then I say at the end of class, okay, in two days, come back. There's going to be a test. The test is that you're going to write down the first 100 digits of pi from memory. And I will say that I recognize that you can't memorize 100 digits of pi in two days. So I expect you to cheat. Don't get caught. And I send them off. And two days later, they come back and there are some great cheats. I mean, they, they're writing them on things. They're uh, all st- uh, There's a series of people who will record themselves. And if they have long hair, we'll have earbuds. So they'll, they'll play it back. Uh, it's someone who painted them in a code on her fingernails, 10 per. It's really quite impressive. Yeah. That uh, yeah, that that worked. Someone uh, strung them in a coat on a necklace, but she forgot to record the beginning beat, so that didn't work. Um, people will uh, you know, write them in, in tiny printing. Anybody who 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 can write a foreign character set will write it in Chinese or Hangul or or some other character set that I'm not going to recognize. So someone this past year. So in, in the in the classroom, there were these ugly yellow, sorry, green things stuck on the desks of how to access the Wi-Fi. So he took one of those and reprinted it and put the digits of pi in one of the lines on the one that was stuck on his desk. Wait, it's even better. He actually made all of them, not just that one, and put them in classrooms all around the school. <laughs> I love that. But his, in front of him, had the digits of pi. Oh, so the other and, ones were like jarbled, uh, garbled? No, the other ones or... were with the instructions on how to, how to get onto the, the Harvard Wi-Fi. The other ones were legit. But they look something like totally like IT would, would have, have made and stuck on. But he just did it. I love that. And you had another so, great example from it, the book of a guy who had a phone in his pocket. Yeah, it found his pocket. It was vib- <laughs> vib- vibrating in Morse code. Yeah, that was a few years ago. That was pretty impressive. So, so I'm trying to teach. You need to think about how systems are hacked. That when you look at a system, you need to think about how it's subverted. And all of us, in some ways, are involved in systems of rules, even as parents. And as a kid, you know, or if you've been a parent, you know that kids are like born hackers you give them a set of rules whether it's like a bedtime or eat your vegetables they will figure out all the loopholes like when you said eat did you actually mean swallow or just chew you know right you know that this is what they do so i'm trying to sort of re-engage that very creative loophole finding problem solving like you know inherent thing that is in all of us but has beaten down but been beaten down by authority over the years mm-hmm. that the truly understand systems we need to think this way 
and we will design better systems if we have this way of adversarial thinking. Now, it was just today at, at MIT in a colleague's lab who is building this system for democratic collaboration. And I'm there because I'm thinking of all the ways it could be subverted. He wants to know them. Right? These, you know, We will build better systems at all levels if we think like an adversary, if we think like a hacker. Mm. That gets to your, your first comments, that we, we would all be a little better if we could think by, about a hacker a little bit. That, you know, to be a criminal. I mean, I will. I can't walk into a, you know, a store without looking around and seeing how to shoplift. Doesn't mean I do it, <laughs> but it means I can see the avenues. And it helps make the system stronger if you use it to. That is the point, right? You use yep. you use it for defense, not for offense. Right. Well, Bruce, that's a perfect place to end this. Thank you so much for your time. Your book is fantastic. Um, I hope everyone. All right now, I'm gonna, now I'm going to hold it up this time. There you go. Pretty nice cover too, right? I think I think it's I well love the cover. cover. I love the colors. I love everything about it. It's fantastic. Um, it's not too long. Uh, I listened to it on Audible as well, which was. Uh, you read it and listened to it. You did both. Uh, well, I took you notes. were an overachiever. I took notes in it and I listened to it. I don't. I've, right. got a, I've got one of those kids too, and uh, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> so I don't always have time to hold a book. Um, I get Bruce, it. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll be in touch. Um, please keep me posted on anything else that's coming out for you. I, oh, I by, the way, by the way, uh, where can people follow and listen to you? I'm going to link your Twitter, obviously, anywhere else. Your, your yeah, Steyer.com. I mean, Twitter just mirrors my blog. I, mean, I, don't, I, I never actually tweet. I never, I'm, not, I'm on no social media. It kind of makes me a freak, but highly productive. But Steyer.com has everything. So my, right, my blog is there, and getting my email newsletters from there. I'm not on Substack. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not a joiner. You're a hacker, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Bruce. Thank you.